Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit-accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome everyone to another episode of 100 Days and Beyond where we speak to those passionate about integrations, M&A work at times, other times it's really the people behind the scenes that we don't get to know, get to see, get to speak to. And 100 Days and Beyond is all about the real people behind the big events that normally happen between entities, be it private equity, venture capital, buying companies, or whether it is entities looking to expand their operations and doing integrations and buying entities and finding ways to glue them together and make them work better at the end of it. So today we've got Kishan Gajar, who is a consulting director and specializes in strategy and transformation and advises and coaches business leaders and C-suite executives in realizing strategic objectives and delivering value. I mean, that's quite impressive, Kishan. So let me just read a little bit more. It's, you like to realize strategic objectives and delivering value. And I want to talk a lot about that today, if we can, that value creation and delivering of value. But your strengths are in strategy translation, which I'd love to hear about, and the execution, as well as the program shaping and recovery in demanding, fast-paced, and highly regulated environments globally. Now, regulation has become a big thing these days, so we're going to have probably have a chat about that. And then what's really interesting for me is that your experience in leading post-merger integrations, carve-outs, which potentially some of our audience members would like to hear more about, and then also regulatory divestments, as well as large business and IT transformations in financial services sector, and has also worked with fintech organizations. So those weird organizations that have been created out of just code. He contributes to sales and business development and practices growth through proposition development. So proposition development, value propositions, I imagine is all about making sure that the sale happens and that customers end up wanting to buy. And then people management, including coaching and mentoring of clients as well as consulting teams. Very interesting. Some of your top skills you list as business transformation, management consulting, and stakeholder management. And you're a board member and a consulting director. So welcome, Kishan. It was quite an introduction, and you're, a, you're, you're obviously a well-experienced bloke. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You speak two, four, six languages, so that's quite a significant amount. <laughs> Don't touch so me on any of them, Dudley. <laughs> no, well, thank you. Thank you very much yeah, for the uh, thank you very much for the welcome and the introduction. Appreciate yeah, welcome and, uh, to the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Just give us a flavor of who Kishan is, where you come from, sort of what your journey was to get into this fascinating world of integrations. Yeah, sure. I'm originally East African Asian, so I was born in Tanzania. I started my career right at the beginning in technology. So the first organization that I worked for was a internet service provider startup as well as a, a mobile virtual network operator. So basically we bought time in bulk thing, mobile networks, we sold them in, in package to different customer group segments, basically. And uh, I did that for about three or four years before I decided to pursue further education, get myself a master's and then 
got into financial services. My first job in financial services was still in uh, Tanzania, but at that point I was working for working across East Africa. And my last role was with the Standard Chartered Bank, and I was a head of business planning and strategy, which is where I first got my deep dive experience into the world of big data analysis. Basically, using terms we use today to describe, you know, there, there were no names for big data back when I was doing big data, so it's quite fun. I moved to the UK about 2008, so that's almost 14 years now. That's where the component of my career that you are most interested in began, which is my first foray into customer acquisitions, divestments, etc. So I, I joined Santander. I joined them one week before they were about to make the announcement of the acquisition of Bingley as a brand. I was one of the one of the key people on that program. We started off with Bingley, but then we also did a few more. We did the Alliance at Leicester. They just purchased Abbey National as a brand. And there are quite a few other smaller integrations that were happening as part of all of the acquisitions that we were doing. I'll tell you later about another acquisition that we were about to do that didn't happen. But how it then led my next role as well. So Santander, I was an internal consultant, effectively helping with the integration. I then moved into an external consultancy called Capital, where I continued to do very similar work, mostly on the separation side rather than the acquisition side. Capco was about four years. Then I moved to Grant Thornton, where I worked with a few smaller clients on similar programs, mostly large-scale transformations, but some were pre-acquisition. And then Four years ago, I decided to go in-house pursuing a different opportunity, trying to expand my experience and learning, experience and knowledge in uh, investment banking side, which is an area of financial services that I didn't have much experience with. So I've, I'm basically trying to continuously develop myself, continuously learn about new sectors, new parts of financial services, but always with a focus on trying to work on cutting edge, large scale, transformative change that's happening around the industry. That wasn't too long-winded. No, that, that was brilliant because I think it sets the tone in terms of your experience in large-scale M&A work and working, especially in the banking and highly regulated environment. And what are really complex transactions, aren't they? I mean, these are transactions that don't just go on for a very short space of time. They normally have a long lead up and a long process th thereafter. And because of the timing, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, maybe you could share something, but there are things that can go wrong just purely because it takes so long. And and I'm yeah. guessing also that, that there would be a change of staff. There'll be people, the teams might change and all those types of additional sort of pressures that you wouldn't normally expect. There's no, nothing ever stays the same, but that's a really good start. So Kishin, one of the things I generally try to understand and help the audience understand as well is let's talk a little bit, what was it that appealed to you to say, aha, this is what I want to do. Is it something you were forced into? Was it voluntary? Was it, yeah, this looks like a really good way. Or was it just, I just happened to be here at, you know. I'll be completely honest. My first foray into this fell into my lap. I was in the right place at the right time. I, when I had my first experience of running one of them through Satan there, I quickly realized that there were not a lot of people out there who came with this knowledge, with this subject matter expertise. And it was an opportunity not just for me to do something really exciting, really groundbreaking, really transformative to two large organizations, at least not just one, but also to learn quickly, because that was one of the things that I believe was beneficial for me. The fact that I'm a quick learner, I can operate in that fast paced, uncertain environment. 
And there's nothing more fast-paced and uncertain than the world of acquisition, where everybody's looking at a clock, trying to make sure that we transform the acquisition into an operational organization, a cohesive and operational organization as quickly as possible so that we can start seeing and reaping the benefits of the acquisition. So synergies, if you will, standard terminology everybody uses. How quickly can we start reaping the rewards of this acquisition that we've made? I suppose um, in contrast, if you think about the separation world, which is which I like to think of as the opposite of acquisition, post-acquisition integration, how quickly can we shed this load or how quickly can we demonstrate to the regulator, as we'll talk about a few of them that are regulatory, how quickly can we go back to the regulator and say this piece of work that you told us to do has been done. Timing is always a big pressure. Timing is a pressure. And I mean, we look at a bank, Santander, Abbey National. If we look at a lot of those entities from the outside as a consumer, sometimes you think, oh, they're branding their, the way they put position themselves into the world. It looks like a perfect organization. So the assumption is that you're taking one really good, perfect organization and you're trying to merge it with another perfect organization. And there's Obviously, then there's the separation, which I'd love to then delve into as well, because I think that's really the conversation I'd like to have with you, especially today, is you almost make the assumption as you're taking one perfect organization and you are splitting it into two equal or not so equal, but two perfect organizations. And mm -hmm. so that's the assumption. But I'm guessing that the starting point is often you taking an imperfect organization, trying to merge it with an imperfect organization yeah. and trying to make the two work together to become an even better perfect or imperfect organization. So tell me a little bit about those impressions. Let's simplify that a little bit. I once tried to challenge myself by explaining to my, and then I think five or six year old nephew, what it was that I was doing. And I talked to him in language that he could understand, hopefully. So if you think about it, you're taking two jigsaw puzzles. You open one box, you have all the pieces to create your picture. You open a second box, you have all the pieces to create your picture. And with the assumption, under the assumption that you've got one perfect organization on this side, i.e. all the pieces of the puzzle fit together to make a picture, and you have the same thing on the other side. Now, if somebody comes to you and says, we need to join, we need to use the pieces of both of these boxes and create one picture, it's never clean. And yes, there's a lot of little cuts and reshaping that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to force a few pieces in together to try and make something that looks like an ideal picture. It's never going to be. If something wasn't designed to be one picture from the beginning, you're never going to be able to take two pieces and turn them into one picture that actually has a beautiful story. There's always a piece that needs to happen further down the line once two organizations have been integrated, where you think about redefining, redesigning the organization to refocus the organization on the objectives of the direction. You take one jigsaw puzzle and you try to split it up. You say, all right, you take that half and I take this half. It's never going to be a pretty picture at the end of the day. So what ends up happening is people like me have to then either copy the pieces that have been taken away and see if we can make them good enough on the other side so that it's still a complete picture, or we have to change the picture a little bit and uh, create a new picture. So yeah, jigsaw puzzles I found was a good analogy to explain it to my father. I love uh, that. That's a good way. Two organizations that have organically grown from where they were at the beginning to where they are today are never going to completely come together as one you know, pretty picture without a lot of effort and a lot of time being spent on The focus of the most post-merger integrations and again, separations as well, 
is usually on the initial period where most of the pain is put in to try and get the two working together. But then in the long term, there's always a need. There's always a need to come back and say, all right, we have, we, you know, we've operationalized this, but now how do we make it efficient? How do we make it you know, cohesive? How do we make sure that 10 years from now, we're all working towards the same goal? Yeah. And just to make it even more complex for those that are potentially looking at this as a career, or even for those in the audience that can just resonate with the actual environment, or even those that, that are looking at doing acquisitions and thinking, okay, how do I plan my integration work? Or even those that are saying, we need to divest, we need to push this part of the organization and sell it and get it out of here. What you also have is in just in normal business circumstances, you have a shifting landscape, don't you? You've got a customer base that are undergoing changes themselves. You've got a shifting market, you've got shifting regulations, you've got shifting almost a, a quicksand in a way under yeah. your feet. Then you've got two organizations that themselves are living, breathing organisms, imperfect to a large extent, many of them. Then you've got to bring them together while this landscape is shifting. So which then adds a, a further dimension of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's where the real skill comes in. So, Absolutely. so tell me, tell me a bit about that. So a lot of organizations will come to you with a playbook or, you know, their toolkit. So we have done X number of acquisitions post-acquisition integrations, we know how to do it. We've got it down to a formula. We know the process. We know exactly how to run it. We've got, you know, teams and hordes of people who have experience to do it. But the truth of the matter is in every single case, the solution that you have to implement, the solution that you have to put in place has to be bespoke to the needs of that organization. And that's not just true for this kind of project. It's true for any consultancy. You can come in with your playbook. You're going to have to tear it up and you're going to have to come up with something bespoke to the specific client's needs. Otherwise, what are they paying you the money for? And now, having said that, it's like if you, if there are examples that are, when I start talking a little bit about the specific pieces of work that I've done, such as at Lloyd's, you'll talk about how the environment outside is changing, but how also the environment within the organization is changing at such a pace that you have to not only deal with that uncertainty, but you have to plan for that uncertainty. You have to build that change, the evolution of the organization into your plan for the separation of the organization. As a learning point for me, it was quite exciting because that was the first separation that I worked on and I was learning from the big boys how to do it. <laughs> Lovely. I love that story. I love yeah. that. Let's shift gears slightly, and then I want to go into a few case studies. But if you had to list a few attributes of a practitioner, of someone who says, hey, I am a post-merger integration practitioner, someone who decided this is my career, this is who I am, this is what I do, would you be able to list a few attributes out of your experience? What makes a good PMI practitioner? That's a very tough question to answer because... The honest to God truth is the list of you know, attributes for a good post-merger integration practitioner is not that far off from the list of attributes for a good management consultant or a good trusted advisor. I could always start with, you know, know your subject area, know your expertise, know your areas of expertise, know what's happening in the market and have a good understanding of what the latest trends and ways of working are. But the truth of the matter is PMI integration or separation is not something that happens very often. I'm willing to put money on the fact that there are no two integrations or separations that are identical. 
they're always going to have unique aspects to it, mm. which basically means no one out there knows all the right answers. So the one thing that I would advise is as a junior practitioner, learn as much as you can, get as much exposure as you can, work with the seniors, listen to what's going on and add anything you learn to your toolkit, but never think to yourself that you're a professional, you know, everything. Yes, you have to sell yourself as a professional as having had professional experience of doing this kind of work, but you're always learning. So never switch off. But the key difference, this is more personal advice for me than just general good advice for my practitioner is don't be afraid to challenge. So you'll get to a point where you've done enough of these kind of projects, where you start to realize that even senior executives in the organization, in the target organization, whether it's the buy side or the sell side, senior executives don't have all the right answer. It is your job as a consultant, as a trusted advisor to go in there and say, here's a better way to do this. And obviously you have to think about the way you word those because they're your clients. But may I suggest that we consider <laughs> option A as well as option B, yeah. because from my experience, I have learned that this approach can work and potentially work better. So never be afraid to challenge because there are so many people in some of the projects that I've worked on have basically just been there saying, we're just doing what we're told to do. And you know, that's not why you're here. Otherwise we just get contract stuff, tell them exactly what we want to do and get them out there doing what we want them to do. This is why we bring consultants in because they come with the breadth of experience, the breadth of exposure to these kind of projects. They're supposed to be helping us shape, define, improve the vision of yeah, how we're going to run this program and what the future organization looks like. Yeah, I love that. For me, I'm picking up the ability to learn, to learn quickly. Yes. I'm picking up, if I look at some other things, you're almost a change agent, aren't you? Because you're challenging, you're bringing about change, but you're trying to do it in a diplomatic fashion too. So you're also a bit of a diplomat as well as a challenger. So it is quite interesting that. Think about it as if you were negotiating a treaty between two countries, which is kind of similar to what you're doing in you know, organizations. You have to be a diplomat. You have to be a diplomat because sometimes coming in too hard are going to get people's backs up. I imagine then. Which they already are. Which they already are. Which, yeah. which they already are considering they're looking at potentially, you know, Two days ago, these could have been rival organizations that are now coming together. Those backs are probably up. People are thinking about whether they're going to lose their jobs, how it's going to affect the club that they currently have within their current organizational structures. All of these things come into play and managing those stakeholder expectations and those relationships. Whereas, you know, in the back of your head, you are constantly and painfully aware of the fact that the future organization might no longer feature these particular people. Hmm. It's a very sensitive organization to be operating. So you definitely have to be done that. People could potentially be losing their jobs, their careers, their livelihoods, their dreams, et cetera. So tell me, <laughs> tell me a bit about just before we move on to some of the actual examples, because you're going to have a few favorites that I'd like you to share. So in terms of working hours, what is it like? Is it something that, you know, like the investment bankers and these guys that do 100, 120, 150 hours a week, hardly any sleep? do these long, big stints. Tell me about a, a working project and how you maintain that sort of balance between sleep and living and eating and being <laughs> with the family and all that. It's a very interesting question because there's, I don't think there's any one correct answer to that. If I think about the first project that I worked in, the culture of the organization that I was working in was that people would be working from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. 
and they would never stop there. Even on Saturdays and Sundays, you'd see emails flying around, you know, people talking to each other, getting on calls. In other organizations, it's still strictly a nine to five. The culture allows it, the culture promotes it, that you don't pick up emails after 5.30 and you don't respond until the next day. Any weekend work has to be you know, discussed in advance, agreed, sanctioned, all that kind of stuff. So it's, there's an element of the, the culture of the organization you're working with. You're dealing with two cultures, not just one. So it's like you're, you've got your client culture, but then you've got your own home office culture where if the partner is looking for and the partner has a, has a style of working that means he's throwing out emails on Sunday morning, it's a choice that you make in terms of whether you accept that, you adapt to that, and how much of an effect that actually has on you. And putting aside for a moment that we're talking about the world of post-merger integrations, any consulting assignment, any contract assignment, any normal work assignment, you need to draw your boundaries. But if you want to grow, if you want to develop in your organization, you also need to be aware of what's important today. And sometimes there will be home, personal, family life is always important. But sometimes there are events within the organization that are pivotal, that are important, where if you make yourself available, if you pull up your sleeves, you have been instrumental in helping something happen, getting something across the line. And hopefully that is seen, that is acknowledged, and that is rewarded. And at the end of the day, I'm sure everybody wants that in their careers. Mm. Ah, I love that a lot. Let's switch back then and, and let's talk about some of the projects. I'm sure you've got a few you want to share, especially around the separation, et cetera, regulation and so on. So let's hear about some of your, uh, your for example, projects. So there, I've got three big projects, three big case studies that I can talk about. One of them is obviously my experience at Santander because Santander was in terms of brands, by far the biggest post-merger integration I've worked on, because if you think about it, there was Abbey National, the bank. There was Bradford and Bingley, which was a, a smaller bank, a building society. And there was Alliance and Leicester, which was at that time, one of the biggest banks in the UK. And they had all been acquired by Santander. The second piece was the Lloyds Banking Group separation, which was known as uh, Project Verde. And Verde was regulatory driven. And then the third example is along the similar lines, the RBS Rainbow program. So a Royal Bank of Scotland, the program was called Rainbow, but it was basically the separation of Williams and Glynn as the uh, brand under which they would separate. I, I'm talking in terms of branches. The true separation should probably be talked about in terms of number of customers affected. It's just been so long that I don't actually have access to that information. On the RBS program, was, uh, we were talking about 1.8 million personal, personal banking customers at about 250,000 small and medium enterprises. But I don't have that comparable information on the Lloyd's side. So it's unfortunate. I have to speak that's, in terms of branches. That's a lot of affected customers, isn't it? That is just 250,000 small and medium-sized entities, 1.8 million individuals or private uh, yeah. individuals. And that affects a lot of people. They would want, I would imagine the word communication sort of comes to mind. <laughs> You would have to communicate. It can't be sprung as a surprise. So let's talk a bit about communication in terms of your experience of what does that look like in a separation, even in, a, in an integration? So if you think about the traditional timeline for a acquisition or a separation, in, sorry, integration or a separation program, the shortest one that I've worked on was nine months. 
which was the acquisition of the uh, offer of into Santander. And the longest one that I worked on, well, technically it never finished. <laughs> they, they went back on the decision to actually separate. But I worked on that piece for two and a half years. So wow. if you think about the durations of some of these programs, and then think from the perspective, from the lens of communicating with your clients, communicating with your customers, communicating with the regulator, you have to have solid forward thinking. You can't just take the approach of saying, we'll plan for the first three months or the first six months, and then we'll have some you know, wavy dotted lines here and some fuzzy milestones further down there. And we'll think about the detailed planning of what we need to do next in due course. You have to cast a plan on paper that takes into consideration all of the key activities that you have to do over whatever that period of time may be, whether it's or two years or longer. And you need to prepare, first, you need to prepare a proposal for how you're going to communicate with the, your full list of stakeholders who you need to communicate with. And in, an, in a change like this, that's your clients, your customers out there, your regulators, your suppliers, vendors, third parties, you have contracts with your employees, the employees of the other organization, they all come into play. And then, and this is the best part, you need to actually run that past the regulator to say, this is our proposal for how we're going to communicate with our customers. And you have to wow. give the regulator the opportunity to actually come back to you and say, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to communicate these elements? We don't think that your the language that you're proposing to use here is transparent enough. They make up back with that as a challenge. And there's a continuous evolution discussion exercise going on where you're trying to keep the regulator happy first before you say, all right, fine, we can now go out and actually send this communication away. So it can be quite challenging. Communication is not one of the streams of work that I've worked directly on, but as you know, in program director capacities, obviously I have over, overall oversight and responsibility for it. But the people who come in and are pulling daily communication plans, love those guys. It's, it's not an easy <laughs> job. Can you imagine as somebody who's responsible for pulling together a communication plan, going to the technology guys and the business guys saying, I need to know when you're going to be doing this. And they're like, that's two years down the line. We haven't even thought about it. Well, you have to, because we need to put the communications plan together. <laughs> it's not as simple as, oh, let me just quickly let my customers know. I'll fire out a mail. I'll send out two or three paragraphs and just tell yeah, them, right. just by the way, you've got this is your branch now, not that. Or, you know, we're changing logos. That's <laughs> yes. not yeah, simple our, regulatory guidelines around the minimum time that you have to give to a customer notice basically of any contractual change to the terms of service. Mm. There are guidelines that you have to adhere to. And that's probably the first step of any communications plan that we need to pull together, which is consulting with our legal teams to understand these are the potential changes that we see coming that are going to impact the client. What are the key communication windows, the, the lags that we need to be aware of so that we can start planning for that. And then you're literally, you're essentially creating a barge pole, putting together these different pieces, these different windows of time that you need to be aware of, such as there needs to be a three month gap between the communication going out and the change happening. Before that three month period starts, there needs to be a six week period of review and uh, discussion with the regulator. Before that, there needs to be a period of, I don't know, probably six to eight weeks of internal review for that communication that is happening. So, you're effectively talking about starting the planning process for one letter that might be going out to the customers in October, starting that process today. 
And obviously, if you're starting something today, you have to have a pretty decent idea of what you're going to be delivering in October. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's communicating outwardly, but I would imagine, and I want to come back to the leadership element of integrations and separations and so on, because it's a type of project management, isn't it? It's a, a leadership role where you have, you know, on the one side, it's a bit like herding cats to a certain extent, and then it's because you've got so many players that you've got no real control over. And you've got other players that may, might be on your team in terms of an integration management office, if you're lucky enough to have one. Mm-hmm. And you have internal team that you try to then, you probably have a little more control over what they do and don't do. You had less control over the those that have their own sort of managers and even customers don't have managers. And if you look at other suppliers or other stakeholders, even the regulator, you almost working for the regulator to a certain extent because you're under a scrutiny. I bet there are certain fines and other kinds of implications that if you get it wrong, yeah. it doesn't look good on the project and it could actually even hamper or, or, or destroy the product a project that you're busy with. So tell me a little bit about getting the leadership principles right. What does that look like in your world? That's a really tough question. Getting the leadership principles right. I, it's, so as a management consultant, I usually end up being brought in, or at least so far in my, in my experience of having worked on these kind of programs, it's usually you know, a senior partner who comes in and says, we have an assignment, we have a piece of work, we need to pull together a proposal for how we're going to do it. And we're going to join the client to present that proposal, how we're going to help them solve this problem. I haven't sold any integration or separation pieces of work myself, although I have done all of sales and proposal to put in We can only influence as external consultants, we've only been able to influence how that should operate within an organization, but we've never been able to actually define what those principles should be. A lot of it is driven, a lot of it is driven by the culture of the organization itself. Culture is driven down from the leadership. We all know that. And in financial services, as in many other big sectors, big industries, you have some very interested egos within leadership uh, circles. So, yeah, without naming names, a couple of the organizations that I've worked in, uh, yeah, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the change decisions, a lot of the change direction is, comes out of the IT organization. And I found that while it's structurally sound and you know, every, everything is planned to minute detail, a lot of time, the people elements are glossed over and not, not really considered properly. And that results in change not being embedded, not being adopted well. And on the flip side, when they're business driven, a lot of times decisions are made to accelerate things, make them happen a lot quicker, whereby they haven't been fully tested. And then you've got, yeah, months and months of fallout being managed through, what do you call them again? Uh, there's a, a defect management. <laughs> there you go. So it's, yeah, that's what they call the defect, but defect can be anything. It could be one system doesn't work properly, or it could be, we've got a problem in terms of the numbers of yeah, transactions going through something. Everything's a defect. It's a very tough question for me to answer because like my job is basically to adapt to the leadership environment within a particular organization. When I'm, when I've gone in with the goal of helping them to deliver X, Y, or Z objectives, I don't help them set the principles. But where the principles are, yeah, are not in harmony with the objectives, 
our role is to then go in and influence and say, we think we need, it, it would be beneficial to change this approach and think about these additional things. I don't think so that was a real curveball question and you handled it incredibly well. And I, I was wondering how you're going to. I'm treating this like an interview. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was actually very, very well handled because what I get, uh, and again, tell me if I'm, if, if, if I'm in the right sort of in line with what you're saying is I get sort of a consensus view. I get the personalities could be clashes, could be stronger, weaker personalities. It could be styles, cultures, et cetera, but. I get the there's I get that you're also in terms of leadership you're also a leading in terms of being a change agent you are a catalyst I think maybe that's a different way to say it the, you're the principle is being able to is to be able to nudge the pieces in the right direction and uh, there's this concept of consensus and I think consensus the problem with consensus is it slows things down you actually can't move ahead because you have to get everybody to to be part of a decision and so there's sometimes it's just like, I wish I could just press the button. Let me say something a little bit contentious. Yes, go for it. I, I have never been one to believe in the, the benefit of decisions by consensus or rather to wait for a consensus in an environment where I know that it's going to slow things down a lot. In my book, the mark of a good consultant is someone who always has their eye on the end goal and then steers the stakeholders around them towards that goal while not completely shutting themselves off from possible beneficial changes. That's a key thing. And so you can't always be like, you know, focused on one endpoint. Six months from now, that endpoint could have changed. So you need to be aware of what's changing in the environment and you need to adapt. But the way I've always approached it especially when I've come across a scenario or a situation where I see that everyone is looking for consensus and that delays things a lot, is I think very carefully about what outcome I want or I need to achieve the goals that I've set myself or the client has set for me. And then think about the way I present the options to So if I came to you, Dudley, and I said, what would you like to do this weekend? You may be the kind of person who knows exactly what you want, would like to do this weekend. Or you might be the kind of person who has uh, analysis paralysis, thinking, I don't know, I need to think about this, give me time, I'm going to look at all of the possible options, I'm going to boil the ocean. If I came to you instead and said, Dudley, I've got some great ideas for what we could do this weekend. We've got mm -hmm. three, three things. Here's option one, two, and three. That immediately makes you focus on three possible outcomes instead of potentially 15 or a hundred. And then there's a third one which says that we have considered three options, which I thought were really good ones for these reasons. I'm actually going to recommend one to you for these reasons. What do you think? I've almost helped you make a decision. And that's the approach I like to take generally when it comes to managing stakeholders in an environment where they're looking for consensus. I would say, you know what? You've hired me to help you do this. You've hired me to help you make these decisions effectively, quickly, having considered everything else. So here's my story. I've looked at all of this. I've boiled it down to these three things, these three options. I have reviewed all of these options based on three param these parameters. I'm now proposing 
this one choice to you, or this one choice, if we want to go this way and this one choice, if we want to go that. So the only question that we need to think about is which direction we want to go. And that has always helped me get a quicker decision out of my stakeholders. Now there have been a few times where not that many, but a few times where I've stumbled a little bit and somebody said, oh, there's something else that we haven't thought about because there's something going on in the external world we weren't aware of, you weren't aware of. I said, and that's a learning opportunity for me. But I would say 90% of the time, the way you manage your stakeholders enables you to get the outcome that you need in the time that you need it. That is brilliant. So you've just given me a really good leadership principle there in terms of how to lead and manage people in a difficult to lead environment. What comes to mind there for me is in, in, in a vacuum, in other words, in the absence of leadership or the absence of direction, whoever is the person, the one-eyed ma man, you know, the one-eyed man is king in the, in the world of the blind, or what do they say that there's a saying like that? It's your expertise is the ability to come in from the outside and your skill set is that. Whoever you're dealing with, they've got a skill set in terms of their specific chosen career. So they might be engineers, they might be accountants, they might be whoever that is. They're really good at that. You're not telling them how to do their jobs. You're giving them what you're good in your job in terms of the direction that they should take. Yeah. And also leveraging their own knowledge because and leveraging part, part of the analysis that I would have done in order to go to them with that short list of three options that I want them to consider would have been to consult with them and say, this is what I want to do before that meeting. What do you think of these options? What do you think of this assessment? Do you think this is a positive or a negative? And then when you play that message back to them in that forum where the decision needs to be made, these people will be your supporters. They won't be fighting you then because you've pre-discussed all of these concepts with them. using their knowledge, their expertise to answer the question. So you could be sitting, you could be sitting there thinking, here's somebody who's coming me and coming to me and telling me what I should be doing. Or you could be thinking, here's somebody who actually came to me for advice and guidance before they presented a central option. And one of those scenarios makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> Love that. Love that. So, so very much. And if I go back to the attributes question, there's that sense of people, there's that human psychology side of things, there's an EQ element as well. So we're coming to the end and I just want to ask, are there any sort of golden nuggets or something you want to share? Is there something that's a takeaway that you'd like to share with the audience? In the years that I've done integrations and separation programs, I've come across so many different playbooks or operating models or documents that basically say, this is how these things need to be done. And every time I've seen one, it's always been different. I've learned had a lot of tricks, ideas, concepts that can be applied in many different areas. Really good. Like for example, when I was working on the Lloyd separation, one of the principles of the separation was from a technology perspective that we would configure partition when we were dealing with legacy systems and we're basically trying to create a new bank that is splitting the legacy system of one bank to serve two. You would, where possible, you would configure the system so that it could serve two brands, initially at least. If you couldn't configure the system, then you would create a partition and you'd basically say, here's partition A for one bank, partition B for the other. And where that wasn't possible, only then would you go and clone the system and build it a completely new one. And it was the first time that I'd seen that kind of thinking because my background isn't from a technology perspective. I'm, I'm, I have a business background. But when I saw that, I thought to myself, you know what? That 
the logical approach that was taken to coming up with this principle, how we're going to run the entire separation of a bank is fantastic. And yeah, the, the same way when I was working on the Santander, so, so that was an integration as opposed to a separation, the principle, the guiding principle that had been set by the leadership of the organization was there will not be a single negative customer journey to any of the customers of our position. What does that mean? If there's something that a customer can do today in their current bank, we will not take that feature away. We will, uh, unless we are giving them something better. So when we're th thinking about Santander acquisition, Rathenamin was the first time that Santander had ever seen a savings passbook, which is a feature of UK personal banking. I'd never seen a savings passbook and I was coming from Africa, but essentially we had a whole host of customers. We came in with a passbook from, I guess it's been around since the sixties, people would go into the bank, somebody would write their latest balance, stamp it and give that back to the customer. And when the Spaniards came in, they were like, I can't believe people still do this. I'm like, well, yes, but principle was, we're not going to take anything away from the customer. So we, as the integration team actually plan to deliver that capability, not just in the Bradford and Bingley branches that already had it, but in all of the other branches of Santander in the UK. So that yeah, customers could wow. use any of our branches. So that was wow. one example. The other thing was the post office channel. So Alliance and Lester's acquisition was the first time we had seen the ability to transact on your bank accounts through a post office. Today, you probably know that you can walk in with almost any bank, you can walk into a post office and you can deposit or withdraw money from your bank account. But at that time that was new. Only Alliance and Lester was doing it. And in the pursuit of not trying to give negative experience to your customers. We have learned some very difficult lessons, but some very valuable lessons on how to create new channels, how to integrate them into the, uh, the core banking systems that serve the bank. We've cut new paths through the jungle. I mean, you've, you've literally created an environment. You've had to learn how to operationalize something that we've never seen before and then put it into practice. And then to the point where it's become scalable and now everybody's doing that's fascinating. And, and, and at that scale as well, I mean, we're not talking here about one or two customers. We're talking about quite a yeah. few. So we're talking about going from, you know, agency banks, agency branches. Have you ever heard of an agency branch? Tell us what that so, is. So imagine going into a travel agent and saying, you know what, I'd like to withdraw some money from my bank account. And they actually have a machine there, which is a bank teller machine where somebody gets on as a, as a teller and transacts on your bank account and gives you cash from your account. And it's not a bank. It's not a post office. It's a little travel shop somewhere in the outer Hebrides, for example. <laughs> and can you imagine the security implications of giving access to your core banking system, or at least a version of your core banking system to those customers, so that, to, to those agencies, so that they, they can interact on a bank? Because it's not, it's bank not account. banking employees, really. It's not even the bank facility. It's an absolutely nothing. It's just a yeah. terminal that's sitting there. Wow, that's fascinating. Tell us about the your sort of future plans. Where is it going? Where is Kishan going to be? Is this who you are? And do you see yourself continue growing and, and establishing yourself as a practitioner? So I will always welcome the opportunity to work in this space, obviously, because I want to continue to learn and to continue to expose myself to the new ideas, the new ways of, of running an integration program or a separation program. I, I want to know how it's evolved from the first time I did it to today. I haven't had an opportunity to do any of that 
for the last uh, four or five years because I've been working internally. And yes, while there have been some acquisitions in my current organization, I haven't been involved in them. But I'm actually going back into consulting now. So right at this moment, I'm about to enter the transition period where I'm going to join a consultancy firm again. And I look forward to doing that kind of work. But one thing I have done is I've expanded my toolkit to go just beyond you know, integrations and separations. I'm now also looking at the core parts of what come together to become separation. So like a core banking system replacement program where one bank says we want to rip out the internals and replace them with something new and we need to re reshape the entire operating model of the organization around that new, that new system that we're putting in. So those kind of projects give you a lot of hands-on experience that you can carry on into the next integration and separation program. So I've done a few of those. I have exposed I have I've gotten exposure to a lot more strategic projects as well. Since I left Capco and I moved into Grant Thornton, I had the opportunity to work on a more strategic as opposed to the more transformative and tactical side of projects. That gave me better understanding of the kind of considerations and decisions that are made before an acquisition decisions happened or at the leadership layer during an acquisition. So one of, one of the projects I worked on was where we were doing a regulatory remediation for a large, large segment of clients that had to be done before an acquisition could be made. And it was exciting because you were seeing the regulatory element of what we needed to demonstrate to the regulator before they would give us permission for that acquisition to go ahead. And wow. it, was a, it was a lens that I'd never seen before doing all the mechanics of pulling two organizations together or splitting them apart. It's like, what, what are the areas the regulator wants to see? Well, wow, that's, that, that's breaking new ground before the, you know, before the machines come in. It's, you're actually mm -hmm. doing all the, like the old days with the prospecting, people would go and see if there's any gold or diamonds or whatever yeah. in the ground. The, the, you would go into those rough territory almost and try and pull the pieces to, oh, that's absolutely fascinating. That's brilliant. There are specialist teams that come in to do due diligence before an acquisition or uh, before, yeah, before an acquisition decision. But those are mostly focused around financials and you know, metrics mm. and APIs. But this kind of work was, uh, I, I, there are specialist practitioners who do that. Whereas there aren't, I think there aren't that many people out there who have the, the kind of knowledge of the day-to-day -day interactions with you know, your stakeholder, your various stakeholder groups out there. So I think it's valuable that I'm, that I continue to get exposure to that, continue to learn that. And then I can bring that to the table the next time. <laughs> lovely, love, love that. Kishan, I want to, I want to maybe just ask you if, if anybody wants to get hold of you, how, what's the best way if they need to contact you, if they want to reach out and, and speak to you, what's the best way to get hold of you? LinkedIn is the best way. It'll, you know, my latest position, my latest role will always be on LinkedIn as well. So that's the best way to get hold of me. Great. And then uh, we wish you all the best for your journey into the future. Please come back onto our show. Tell us where you're at once you've joined the new entity and you've experienced a few more great case studies and so on. Thank you very much for sharing today. We really do appreciate it and the audience I'm sure appreciates as well. Looking forward to seeing you again and, and all the best for you, your family and everyone else that you deal with. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to it. <laughs> great. Excellent. So thank you, everyone. That's, uh, that's the end of today's episode. And may you have a great post-merger integration if you're busy with one and if you're looking to do any post-merger integration work remember we always a resource available for those just wanting to get a glimpse into the world the fascinating world of this 
integration, whether it's systems, processes, peoples, and things, banks, all the way down to other kinds of firms. But this world is fascinating and always intriguing. And we have great individuals that are real learners. And Kishan has shown us the attributes, again, of what makes a really good practitioner in this world. Kishan, thanks again. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye, everyone. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merge integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.